Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode. This week I'm joined once again by Robert Miller. Robert, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. Well, it's always good to have you on. You've been on several times and I always enjoy getting to chat with you about these crazy stories and get your unique perspective. Remind everybody what you do. So I own two companies, one being Malaire Legal Nurse Consulting. I am a legal nurse consultant, review cases for both plaintiff and defense for everything from long-term care cases to uh, murders and, and sexual assaults, domestic violence type cases, child abuse, testify as an expert from Florida to Guam. It's crazy. And then I also own Under Oath LLC, which is a litigation prevention education program credited through the American Nurses Credentialing Center that hopefully we can, we're trying to get approval for mandatory education hours for nurses across the board because there's just so many nurses that get the deer in the headlights look when they are named in a lawsuit and we want to make sure that they're protected adequately. Ooh, I love that. Oh, wow. So well, for the good nurse yeah. segment, what I would like to do, I know we, we talked about what you do before when the first time you were on, but that's kind of new. This is sort of an update. I know you were working on that before, but I would like to, we'll dig into that some more because I know people are always curious about this sort of thing, sure. especially something like that, that can be available to protect nurses and yeah. educate. Also want to talk about what you have going on medically in your life because it's, you just told me right before the show, and I'm so blown away. You guys are going to be amazed when you hear about this amazing procedure that Robert just had recently. It's crazy. Yeah. All right. So for now, I guess we can talk about this, this bad nurse story. Oh my gosh, you guys. So let's get the bad stuff out of the way. I know. I was, I, oh, <laughs> this is so unbelievable sometimes what these people do. This person that we're going to be talking about today, Kristen Gilbert, is actually the reason she's the, this is the first story that I ever came across that I actually heard about her on another podcast. And I remember this was so many, this was like, what, six years ago or something or longer. And I remember being so incredibly shocked. I was a relatively new nurse at the time. I've only been a nurse for eight years. So at the time, I just remember being like, there is no way that there is a nurse out there that would do something like this. I was so incredibly just flabbergasted. I couldn't believe it. I went home and started looking it up, looking up the story. I was shocked. But then when I started researching her, I couldn't believe what what I just knew I was going to be like, you know, nurse who killed her patients and it would be like one person. I was horrified to see that there are other not just nurses, like all these other things were coming up and I it just sort of I think that that was part of the reason that I wanted to start the podcast was sort of I knew about all the amazing things that we do as nurses and how all the wonderful people that go into healthcare, the vast majority of 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 which are amazing. 
But this is a side that I was so shocked to hear about. I felt like we need to be we need to be talking about it. We need to be shining a light on this stuff and be aware that there are people both as as like the proverbial bad apple. Yeah, we have to be aware of these people, right? We could be patients. Yeah, yes. You were just a patient. You know, you've got to be aware that there are horrible people yeah. out there that that actually make their way into healthcare, unfortunately. So yeah, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna dig back into this because I did this story as like the very first story, and I at the time that my gosh, the sound quality was horrible. I just didn't, you know, it. We were just Sam and I were just like, hey, let's have a podcast. <laughs> we, just, we had no idea what we were doing. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Kristen Gilbert was born Kristen Strickland on November 13th in 1967 in Fall River, Massachusetts. She is an American serial killer. She was convicted of three first-degree murders, one second-degree murder, and two attempted murders. Her heinous crimes were committed at the Veteran Affairs Medical Center, which makes it just so all the more heinous because a lot of most of her, well, all of her victims were either families or vet veteran family yeah families or veterans themselves so it's just it's just really disgusting so she was employed there from march 1989 to february 1996 her modus operandi involved injecting patients with epinephrine which would lead to heart attacks and as i said i couldn't even believe when i read about this the first time but this as I would go on to learn, I, I was, you know, at the time, I'm, I was a grown woman with grown, with, you know, older children. I didn't understand the war. I guess I was just so incredibly naive. I can't even believe it sometimes how naive I well, was. Well, you just don't expect people that go into healthcare to just be taking people out. No, you, know. you would hope not. No. You would hope not. Well, from a young age, she showcased notable intellectual capabilities. She was very, very precocious, very intelligent. Then as she grew into her teenage years, she developed a reputation for being a habitual liar. One of her most notable fabrications was claiming kinship with the infamous murderer, Lizzie Borden. If that's not some foreshadowing, I don't know what is, because she was apparently somehow became uh, aware of the story of Lizzie Borden and decided to tell everybody that she was a long lost relative. Yeah, we all we always want to be aligned with those that are um, killing people or doing negative things in the community. That's that's yeah. a that's not a red flag at all. Mm-mm, not at all. Another significant lie involved a feigned suicide attempt by consuming glass, which led to her temporary admission to a psychiatric facility. Despite her behavioral issues, she graduated from high school at age sixteen. As I said, she's very precocious, very intelligent. Graduated high school at sixteen, took a job as a home health care worker caring for a special needs child. So while she was taking care of this child, there was an incident one day involving that child being scalded with hot bath water. And this child, I believe, had cerebral palsy and was nonverbal. And so 
the the child had to be taken to the hospital. She was fired, but there were no charges brought against her. And it's not, there's no, nothing ever came of it. So she enrolled in Greenfield Community College and went on to become a registered nurse in 1988. That same year, she married Glenn Gilbert. Her professional nursing career began at the VAMC in Northampton in 1989. And within a short span, she gained recognition for her work, even being featured in the magazine VA Practitioner in April of 1990. And then you can find the picture online of her standing there, one of the featured healthcare people in this magazine. So she was kind of this, this was the sort of person who would stand out at work as being exceptional, as being really capable, very highly skilled. She would be the kind of person you would think you would want to have available during a code. Yeah. It's one of those people when they walk in your room, you're glad to see them. And then uh, when they walk out, you're not so sure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because um, every time I've been on with you, even even like the incident with the child, every one of these stories that we've done together, there has been these uh, red flashes or red you know red flags that go up where people either didn't report it, they there was no files charges or anything that all precipitated these events and this you know these 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 just horrendous things that these people have done. And again, we sit here with this story where you know an incident happened with this child that if it had been reported, she probably never would have become a nurse. Well, you would hope. I have done stories before where some sometimes these things are reported and it just kind of gets swept under the rug. Yeah. For yeah. one reason or another, or like a hospital will know that something is going on and they will just kind of quietly let them leave. They don't even fire them. They just say, look, right, they right. want to just go quietly. Let them move on to the next place and can you do doing whatever they're doing? Yes, exactly. Out of sight, out of mind. Well, Charles Cullen was, was one yeah. of those. Just yeah, it's, it's kind of it's really unbelievable. It's just yeah, it's scary. But it turns your stomach. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Yeah. So at the VAMC, she worked primarily on Ward C, a facility for chronically ill patients, and the hospital's intensive care unit. Her colleagues started noticing an alarming number of fatalities during her shift. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but I've I've had people say before, like point out like don't you don't oh no so and so is working they they've got the dark cloud over them some every time they work somebody dies and it's a joke or it's like maybe it is an observation because it, it those things happen there are coincidences that happen and you you do joke around i mean we we kind of sometimes healthcare workers can have sort of a dark sense of humor and yeah joke about things that i think the general public would be like that's not funny you know yeah. but Especially, especially the night shift people, because you know things always the crazy things always happen on a night shift. So right. you, yeah, we joke and we nurses do have a sense of, a, a weird dark sense of humor because of the stuff that we just see every day. The same thing like in the military, we had to have a sense of humor because if you don't laugh at it, you it just it can, can consume you. So you have to have a sense of humor. Yeah, it's definitely a coping mechanism. I've said that before. You you uh, absolutely have to have a way an outlet and some way of coping with something that sometimes is if you tried to face it head on every single time you had to put a patient in a body bag or all the things that we have to yeah. deal with through covid i my goodness i have to say that up until covid i i dealt with death i i feel like it was in a pretty healthy way once covid hit and it was just like one after another after another after another it just 
it, it was like a completely different thing. I did. I was no longer able to cope. I, I could not. There was no coping mechanism that was going to help me like deal with the fact that, okay, here's this person walking. Because I think what bothered me the most with COVID was they would walk in wearing like two liters of oxygen because they a lot of times would be sent home from the ER on oxygen because we didn't have room for them. So a patient that would normally right. be admitted, they would they would be like, well, we're going to send you home on oxygen. Then they would come back and they'd be like, well, I'm, I'm so they're still desatting on a couple of liters. So they've got the nasal cannula in. They walk in. A lot of times kind of um, even like don't want to be there. And they're just like, I don't want to be here. You know, they're like grumpy. After a while as an ICU nurse, especially when I worked in a kind of a rural area, I would look at them. They would almost look like dead dead people walking. I would just be like, oh Zombies, my gosh, yeah. I know what you're going to look like in a couple of months. And I, I couldn't deal with it. It was too, it was just too much. Well, and one of the problems with COVID was you never really got a chance to process what was going because the next one was right there. It was, I mean, it was constant. It was overwhelming. And, and that's what, I mean, see, had so many nurses with the burnout because the, I mean, there was no ability or no process for them to be able to, to process, to decompress, to do anything. It was just, here's the next, here's the next client. Here's the next, here's the next death. And you're, you're already kind of overloaded. You have too many patients to be able to really safely be able to care for. Right. And so you're already kind of, you got all that on you. There is no time. And not only that, but you're dealing with your own processes of the whole COVID thing because there was so yeah. many unknowns. So you, then you're, am I taking this home to my family? Am I, am, yeah. how is my health going to be? Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was worrying about the patient, worrying about myself and worrying about the family. It was, you know, you had a kind of a trifecta of emotions going on that you were never able to process until the whole thing kind of blew up. Yeah, it was, too, it was definitely too much. And I know that there are a lot of people still dealing with that now because I, I hear from them. Oh, yeah. they, they message me all the time and talk about, I really hope that people are getting, getting help, getting therapy and seeking out ways uh, to learn how to process that now, even afterwards, because there are lots of people with PTSD that probably don't even realize they have PTSD that don't even understand that, you know, right. if they have to walk into right. a room and put PPE on and they start like before they ever, ever even get it on, they start sweating and they start feeling anxious and they start feeling just like, why am I feeling this way? I I remember feeling that way when I worked on a unit that didn't have any COVID patients because it was a surgical unit. But then every now and then somebody would get diagnosed incidentally on the floor and then you would have to go. And I remember just feeling this hor just like nervous, like awful feeling. And then recognizing that I must be feeling this way because I haven't worn this stuff since all that. So yeah. Right. So I, I I hope that if you guys are listening and you're struggling with some of these things that you will get some help because it's a lot. It's it's a lot to deal with and it doesn't just go away on its own. It's, you have to process it. And the reality is as nurses, we can't help others unless we're helping ourselves. And so it's a really really important to take care of yourself so you can take care of others because if not, I mean, it's going to come out one day one way or another and it's better just to address it and if you're having those feelings, you know, embrace them and recognize them and talk to somebody and, and go through the process because it's not worth the blow up at the end. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. 
Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low-dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work. And now, their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell a difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there, get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. I kind of went on a teeny tangent on this, but I wanted, I, I do that deliberately sometimes because I like to use these stories as an opportunity to pull in some other kind of education and talk about some other things that are really important. So I wanted to take this opportunity to, to just talk about that. So some people were calling her the angel of death in jest. They were joking, but you know, I'm sure in hindsight, they were just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, here we were joking around about it. In 1995, she started having an extramarital marital affair with a police officer, a resource officer there at the hospital, like a security officer. His name was James Perrault. And then in 1996, so she's still married to her, her husband, Glenn Gilbert, and she's having this affair. So in 1996, three nurses officially reported their concern about an unusual spike in cardiac arrest deaths and a mysterious decline in the hospital's epinephrine supplies. So someone was kind of on it, really, if you think about it. Somebody's paying close attention. That's really good. This is 1996, you know. What's significant about that timetable, too, is, and what, I mean, if you think about the timing, that's about the time that the Pixis system came into play, where we were actually counting uh, meds and everything had to be signed out in a computer system. So it was in its very rough stages, but there was actually accountability for meds, not just in an open cart where a nurse would go pick it out, sign it out. There was actually, it had to be signed out to a patient or, or it would go notice, but it was missing. I, I thought that when I first read this, uh, I was like, you know, that's that's about the first time I remember the Pixis system even mm-hmm. being in play. That makes a lot of sense. It's almost as if maybe before this, it wouldn't have even occurred to somebody how much of something was there versus right. how, you know, how much is supposed to be there, how much has been used. And then all of a sudden, it's like, right. it, it becomes more obvious. Right. Yeah. So this triggered an initial investigation by the Office of Healthcare Inspections, which did not find any intentional harm by any employee. Later, a criminal investigation was launched, culminating in her arrest, however. The prosecution argued that Gilbert's motive for inducing these emergencies was twofold, to exhibit her nursing prowess and to attract the attention of her lover parole. So apparently what she would do is... When he was working in the hospital somewhere as the security officer, she's working in the ICU or wherever unit she's working, and she wants to see her boyfriend and her way of getting to see him, getting him to come. Not only does she want to see him, but she wants him to see her in action. She wants to show off her skills. You know, we talked about how 
how highly skilled she is, highly intelligent. She wants to show off in front of him. So what a better what better way to do that than to inject a patient with something that will cause their heart to stop or go into a lethal arrhythmia and then have to call because I know that in the hospitals I've worked in if you call a code if a code is called overhead security shows up. And so she knew that that was going to happen and that's exactly what would happen. It's kind of like the same the same process you see where people set fire so they can go oh, and put yeah. them out. Yeah. You know, it's that it's that same it's that same thing the the hero the hero complex. They want people to they have to create situations where it calls them in to be able to be the hero. And so here we are. She just wants uh, she wants all the attention. It seems like she did everything to kind of be that exemplary person. And whenever whenever she wouldn't get the attention she wanted, she would create a scenario mm-hmm. where she would get it. Yeah, that's interesting. I now that you think now that I'm thinking about what you just said, I don't think I've done any stories like that as far as firefighters go. And I we've talked about EMS and firefighters. Oh, there's tons, tons of arrests, tons of prosecutions on on people starting fires so they could be the first person there to uh, put out the fire or, or run in and save somebody from a burning, you know, building or whatever. I so, guess my, my personality crazy. must be just so incredibly different because as much as I loved, you know, when I transferred over from PCU to CVICU, I remember getting overwhelmed with the realization that I was the person now. Like I, there was nobody for me to call because when I was on PCU, it was like, they need a higher level of care. We can't, we can't manage this here. And so that realization right. was so overwhelming. And I, I, I just, it's hard for me to imagine trying to orchestrate a scenario in which I would have to do that. Because while I was prepared to do it, and I was obviously willing to do it, or I wouldn't have transferred, it made me extremely nervous every single time. Just anytime I had to be kind of like in the spotlight, like we would get patients from open heart surgery. They would come right out of surgery. I mean, I was PACU and they came right to me. I was, they were my patient. They were hooked up to all these lines. They had so many drips. It was crazy. And I was responsible for them. There was about like six other nurses who were also, who were doing things to get, to get my patient ready. And I got report from the CRNA about the the patient and and they were my responsibility. And it was, I, it, it was probably one of the the things that would cause me to go, do I really want to do this? What is wrong with you? You're Why do you want to put yourself under this kind of stress? Because it was so overwhelming. I cannot imagine. Want th- that's the part that I hated the most, you know, just that feeling of being under a spotlight of every be- everyone being like, hey, it's all on you. What you going to do? You know, I got I can't imagine that kind of ego. Some some people that well, I mean, she obviously was wanting his attention and she was going to do it whatever way it took to get it. Yeah, and she was obviously really good at it. I mean, at at handling those situations because there were patients that that they were able to bring back that they suspect that she that she that she mm-hmm. medicated had cardiac arrest, and then she was mm-hmm. the superhero and brought him back, and then she was the uh, the right. glorified nurse. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's just it's frustrating to me to to think about someone doing that. But for people that are listening to this, if I realize it takes all kinds, and there are lots if we didn't have people who were willing to do that, who, who did thrive on that adrenaline, I, I'm sure we would probably, we already have a shortage of people willing to take care of people. So I'm sure we would have a problem of having a major shortage. So I appreciate 
those people. But I don't know how uh, to encourage someone who is so depraved that they are willing to sacrifice someone's life or risk their life to bring glory to themselves. I, I, I would hope that if if you don't care about that person, stop and think about the fact that people are watching you because there are there are, this 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 stuff has happened so many times that everyone around you is watching everything. Every, there are all eyes are on healthcare workers right now. And they, I think that there are prosecutors out there that are kind of ju- jumping, you know, like waiting to jump at the opportunity to arrest nurses because it's happening everywhere. I see this all the time. So <laughs> if you really want to put yourself that, you know, if, if you need that kind of a gen- adrenaline rush that bad, you, it's pretty likely you're going to get caught. So let me just tell you, they're looking for you. Throughout the criminal proceedings, Gilbert was also implicated in multiple threatening acts. She made anonymous menacing calls to the VAMC, one of which involved a bomb threat. She also tried to obstruct the investigation by blocking Perolt's car, pleading with him not to meet investigators and later vandalizing his vehicle when he didn't comply. So when once they started this investigation, when the security officer realized that she was under this investigation and realized all of the evidence against her, he, he backed off, you know, quickly, he was like, I'm not interested. This is, this is not what I signed up for. He he had wanted nothing to do with her. This lady was a sociopath. Just call it what it is. She's an absolute sociopath. She just happened. She just happened to be a nurse, a little off her rocker and a total sociopath. And she was completely obsessed with this guy. And when she got fired from the facility and wasn't able to didn't have access to him anymore then she starts this calling bomb threats and doing things showing up at his house and trying to basically beg him to well for one thing she didn't want him to testify against her but for another thing she was just you know she vandalized his car it's just she's got some carrie underwood vibes going on here i don't know yeah So the indictment against her claimed that she had killed four patients and attempted to kill three others by injecting them with epinephrine. Furthermore, the prosecution alleged that in November 1995, she tried to kill her husband, Glenn, by poisoning him with potassium. I would, man, this woman, can you imagine like all her friends and the the people that are around that once all of this kind of was said and done to look back and go, oh my gosh. Yeah, I can't. I can't even imagine because everybody. Yeah, everybody that knew her was like, "What did she what? try to do to me?" And because I, I mean, you start doing you start gut check like, moment, like, how many times did, did she I make me a drink? Off? Like, right? <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Just, <laughs> yeah, that's. Despite the overwhelming no. allegations, Gilbert maintained her innocence. She argued that most of the cardiac incidents were natural outcomes due to the pre-existing health conditions of the patients. For the uh, alleged attempt on her husband's life, she explained it was a mere blood draw gone wrong. She was drawing his blood at home because that's that's very oh, yeah. normal. That's that's no. you know most. I don't know what you're talking about because I draw my wife's time, blood daily. every day. Daily blood draws. Q four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even I don't even know how she thought that excuse was going to fly because I mean, who does that? I, I believe it or not, yeah. I've had other stories where I it was it hasn't been that long ago where a doctor drew blood out of his wife's arm because she was having chest pain, supposedly. And she ended up dying the next day. So she was, yeah, was found dead of cardiac arrest. He was convicted. So anyway, 
people will try weird things. I mean, I've started IVs at home for people that are dehydrated, that kind of things, but I'm not drawing blood. Go, Draw go blood the and ER. then do what? You're going to take it to the lab? I know. I was going to say, what are you going to do with it? Put it in a baggie. What are you going to do? Here, Here's a Ziploc container of just, my, my wife's blood. I don't know a single nurse that keeps those kind of supplies with right. the tubes and stuff that you draw. I don't even know who would keep vacutainers exactly. and that kind I'm of thing sure at that home. They, I, I'm sure you could. I, I Obviously, you could because these people have done that. They have the people I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have access to them. I could get them, but I would never even, not even a thought. That's not something that's going to be life-saving or I've had access to a lab to get that never result Never going to be normal to do that. IV bags, dehydration, out hiking makes total sense. Vacutainers nope. to draw blood for a uh, a lab result. Where I mean, where are you going to get the stat lab from? It, it makes no sense. Right. And in the the case that I was talking about with the doctor, he that was how, that was how he justified the, the needle uh, stick in her arm, the multiple needle sticks in her arm, actually, by saying, oh, yeah, I drew blood because I was going to send it off to check. What was he going to check? Troponin level? I mean, what, what, right. what are you do? What are you doing from home? You're going to check cardiac enzymes. So, I mean, I, I guess he could have been also, you know, checking potassium level and that sort of thing. But why? This makes no sense. If you're really concerned, you would have taken her to the ER. I'm sorry. Anyway, that just always drives me nuts every time I think about that story. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, yep. In March 14th, 2001, this was a, kind of back in the day, a federal court convicted Gilbert. Though Massachusetts doesn't practice capital punishment, her crimes occurred on federal property, making them eligible for the death penalty. So she was kind of squirming there for a little while, wondering if maybe she wouldn't get the death penalty. But based on the jury's recommendations, she received life in prison without parole with an additional 20 years. They were like, we're not going to kill you, but we want you to be in prison and we want you to stay there for sure. When I first read this, I saw that she was from Massachusetts. I kept thinking, maybe this is one of those people that actually in, in that lineage of the of the people they accused of being witches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I don't even know what's going on right now. But yeah, I mean, this this lady was a total sociopath. It just and it, I'm glad she, I'm glad that she actually got gets to stay in prison for for life, and she's in the best place she could possibly be because I don't think she would be a benefit to society. At all, I think she proved that at work, at home, and in any relationship she was in, she was uh, she did not have people's best interests at heart. She was first incarcerated in Framington, Massachusetts, but then later transferred to the Carswell Federal Medical Center in Fort Worth, Texas, where she continues to serve her sentence. She dropped her appeal for a new trial after a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that would have permitted the death penalty in a retrial. Oh, she's like, eh, never mind. It's okay. I get, I just yeah. kidding. I don't, I'm good. She didn't <laughs> want that kind of attention. Uh, yeah. Given another <laughs> chance, I think another 12 people would have probably. Yeah. No. I, mean, I, I think that she was very fortunate to have gotten the sentence that she did, given especially with it being veterans. I just, it's really shocking to me that, that people were not just more like, oh, you know, absolutely death penalty for you. But. Right. Despite her conviction, the true extent of her crimes remains the subject of speculation. Staff members at the Northampton VA MC estimate she might have been involved in over 80 deaths and 300 medical emergencies. Her life and crimes serve as a chilling reminder of how a person in a trusted position can exploit their power to sinister ends. Wow. So that's Kristen Gilbert. She's a winner. She is definitely the winner of the bad nurse you know, award. It's, it's she definitely is the one of between. It's between her and Charles Cullen. When if you look up nurses 
you know, who, who killed her patients, it's going to be her or Charles Cullen. And then there are the ones that, that have killed children. She's definitely an elite club. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank goodness. We don't want it to be a popular club for sure. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So, you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. Robert, let's get into the good nurse segment. I always, I always like to shift over from that dark stuff and get to talk about something kind of like more positive. So I'm excited to get to talk. Yeah, let's talk about something positive. These, these, these crazy, these crazy killer nurses really know, bring me it down. Is, it is. It's. I, I'm always just like <laughs> conflicted about whether to talk about it or not, but I do feel like it is important. I, the spotlight needs to be brought on it because people need to know mm-hmm. what to look for, that that stuff does exist. And if they don't report stuff, I mean, those kind of things could be even more rampant than they yeah. already are. So no, I think, I think it's great you're bringing a light to it. I love being a part of this. I think it's important people see what, what, I mean, life is life and real. So, I mean, there's, there's crazy everywhere. We got to keep our eyes and our ears open, know when to report stuff and know when to identify when things just aren't uh, what they're supposed to Absolutely. be. Absolutely. So I want you to kind of just maybe recap like you, who you, who you are, what you do and, and go really into what you were talking about with your, that new venture that you were speaking about at the beginning. Sure. So my name is Robert Malaire. I am the the sole uh, the owner of uh, Malaire Legal Nurse Consulting. I do legal nurse consulting and life care planning. So I review medical cases um, for for deviations of standards and violations of state and federal regs for um, all types of medically related cases, from family law to 
um, divorce cases to criminal defense cases, all the way to nursing home and medical malpractice type cases. And then I do medical billing reviews as a life care planner for to ensure that past medical bills for usual, customary, reasonable, or UCR. And then doing future cost projections for medical needs and life care planning for the duration of life expectancy. So that's what I do under Malaria Legal Nurse Consulting, but I'm also the owner of Under Oath LLC. For Under Oath LLC, we are developing and drafting litigation prevention education programs from everything from MDs to RNs, nurse practitioners, um, uh, PAs, all the way down to certified uh, nursing assistants. Um, and it's developing and, and it's, and we're drafting and developing these education programs for every practice area. We've already completed a general one that we've already submitted to the, that for, to obtain sort of uh, accreditation through the American Nurses Credentialing Center. We are now doing one for long-term skilled care nursing homes. We will, and then we are going to do one for every practice area, including assisted livings, inpatient psych, outpatient psych, ICU, ER, med surge, surgical units, home health, hospice, dialysis, correctional health care, uh, military, and each one is the, the, the core program is pretty much the same, but then the specialized areas for those specific clinical areas, it explains what is required in documentation. How do you save your license? Um, what are your um, rights as a healthcare provider if something, if a facility is asking you to do something illegal or something that you feel you can't do within your, within the scope of your practice? What are your avenues to, to legal assistance? And then if you are named in a, in a suit, what do you do? Do you just rely on the, the legal team of the facility? I would highly recommend that you don't. And, and healthcare people need to understand that there, that there is a, a necessity to have your own insurance that protects you and your, and your license and your, and your, and your clinical practice. Because at the end of the day, sad to say, but facilities are going to be in it for themselves. They are there to protect themselves. And, and, and you as an employee, you're named underneath that facility, but they're going to do the best to protect themselves. So having, having that practice and, and clinical insurance is, is highly, highly, highly necessary and working with your own team of, of lawyers that are there with your best interest at heart, not just the facility is very, very important. We are already been in contact with multiple higher education facilities, universities that are already wanting our information, wanting us to come put on lyceums and different speaking type things and presentations. We plan to do this both live and online. And then our proposal is that we make this a mandatory CEU for nurses across the board. And having done, having been in the legal nurse consulting world for eight years now, almost nine, watching nurses come in that are named in lawsuits and sit up there on the stand and be asked questions and they have no clue what's coming. I think we are doing an injustice to our nurses and sending them out there, not preparing them because the reality is, like you said, attorneys are watching. And they're and they're just waiting for things to come. And if you if you aren't aware of what happened during during COVID and the nursing schools, all of these healthcare facilities did not allow nursing students to come into their facilities to do clinicals during COVID. So what were the nursing students doing? They were working on dummies. They were working on computers. They never touched a live person from 2020 of March 2020 through almost 2020 the entire year 2022. 
And I mean, I, I have friends, I have a family member that that works at a university um, school of nursing and the frustration levels of having to pass people, get them to sit for an NCLEX. And just because you can pass a test does not mean that you have the clinical skills that you should be practicing in the clinical area. And if you, and sitting where I'm sitting and looking at cases, the number of medical malpractice practice cases involving nurses are already on the rise. And I, and we, we are recommending that, that the, that we do a, a nationwide study to determine if these nurses on this rise are coming from this time frame of nurses that graduated during the COVID non-clinical education time frame. Because it's very alerting that at, right after this occurrence, that all of a sudden we're seeing this rise. Is it just because more people are aware and reporting things? Is it because they don't have a lot? La- they have a total lack of those clinical applications and experience. I don't know, but there needs to be a there needs to be a research study determining that. Because, as you well know, if you don't have the clinical practice experience and you're just thrown into these areas. I Bad things are going to happen. I, uh, so very, very, very proud yes. of what we're doing. Look, it's a lot of work putting these things together. The ANCC, American Nurses Credentialing Center, they do not make it easy to meet their requirements. Nor for would you want them to. It's a lot of work. <laughs> nor, nor would you want to do them. Right. We want, we want a high standard to make sure that people are getting what they're paying for. And that whenever we put out a product and nurses say we're getting this education we want to make sure that it's beneficial, not just something they can check off on and go you know, about their way. We're yeah, dealing with people's lives. Absolutely. So, so absolutely. What can nurses do that are listening to this that want to access your, your service? What can they do? How can they find you? So our website's the best place to go or just call me. My website is Malaire. It's M-A-L-A-E-R. It's my last name, MalaireLegalNurseConsulting.com. My phone, I carry it everywhere. I'm available. I make myself available. My phone number is 541-241-4019. It's available on my website. We have already completed the first two modules of these of these programs. We have to submit three uh, to the ANCC to, to receive accreditation. So we're in the process of, of completing that third module, getting it submitted. Uh, once, that done, once that is done, um, there's a team of four of us, me, another nurse that is a my lead subcontractor for Malaria Legal Nurse Consulting. She's part owner and under oath. And then my wife and then my sister, who is a teacher educator, which, I mean, the way that all this just came together, I, I just totally believe it was a God thing. And we're just looking forward to getting this thing uh, kicked off. We, through our website, you're going to be able to access the online portion that will be you can walk through at your own speed and time. And then we are also going to be putting together live conferences. We're going to be going hopefully to Vegas, uh, Florida, uh, Tennessee, and putting on live conferences, inviting nurses. Um, we're sending, we'll be sending out um, information. Like I said, we already have universities just begging us to come do these presentations. The nursing programs, the, Amer- the American Medical Association, they want to protect yes. their people. And they just don't have the time in their curriculum to add anything that's not mandatory, you'd go to a nursing school, you you have everything crammed in this very short gap because they're trying to just get nurses out, past, and in, in the practice uh, clinical areas. And unfortunately, litigation prevention and understanding the legal side of, of the law of medical practice and nursing practice just isn't a high priority. But we are working very hard to make it that way. Yeah, the NCLEX is not going to have a lot of of questions regarding 
that topic, you know, legal type questions. Well, nursing school, their focus is to get you to pass the NCLEX. That's ultimately, they right. they want a high percentage of their students to pass the NCLEX, and that's their goal. One of the biggest thing I would encourage and challenge every CNA, medication aid, medical assistant, LVN or LPN, RN, nurse practitioner, any of those, if you're listening to this podcast, I, I, I challenge you to answer this question. In the legal world, what does the term uh, standards of practice mean? Most, most people, including myself, before I started doing legal nurse consulting work, I had no idea. If I had answered prior to doing this job, I would have said that the, AM, the, the American Nurses Association or some other entity would make up the standards. It's not. The standards of nursing practice or whatever within your scope of practice, it is what another individual with the same education, training, and experience has would do in the same given situation in the same geographic location. That is the legal definition of standards of care. It's not written in a book. It's not written by an organization. It is what somebody with the same education, training, and experience would do in the same given situation that you were put in. So when you do peer review, they're establishing what the standards of care is. And understanding that, and the reason it's the geographic location is so important is, if you're in a rural hospital, you don't have access to all the things that they would have in an urban hospital or a level one trauma center. So those types of things have to be taken into consideration. But whenever whenever opposing counsel brings in an expert that has the same education, training, and experience that you do, they're going to testify as to what you should have done. They're not bringing a book that you should have read and said, okay, um, because this person came in with a STEMI, this is what should have been done. They're not. Whatever this nurse says they would have done in that same given situation is going to be what you're measured against. And most most healthcare providers have no idea that that's what that's what reality. It makes me think of the trial for Redonda Vaught because I sat through that and I watched the nurse that the prosecution brought in from a different state, mind you, that she had been a nurse for a long time, but had not been a nurse in a while for several years, had not actually worked as a nurse. And yeah. I remember being very frustrated and this was a criminal trial. I remember being very sure. frustrated watching this because I, number one, I could tell because there were some things that I, I heard her say. Also, he handed her a, a vial of ecronium and a syringe and asked her to draw it up and she didn't do it. And I think it's because she didn't know how, honestly, swear. She kind of fumbled around with it a little bit. And I was just like, this is the person. This is the standard. She's the one that's setting the standard for this person. I know for a fact that Redonda Vaught had only been a nurse for a couple of years when she made that medication error, working at Vanderbilt University or Vanderbilt Medical Center, a very large right. institution. Right. And it 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 just kind of like, to me, that wasn't a peer. That was not someone that would have should have been setting the standard because she didn't even live in this state. She had not been a nurse for a while, but she had been a nurse for a long time. And I just I feel like for her to sit there and go, oh, absolutely not. You would never do this or I would have never done that. It it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I, I kept thinking, why, you know, no one is understanding. The jury is not hearing that 
when Radonna Vaught was trained, I guarantee you the type of training that she got was this hustle bustle, like everything's crazy. Oh, I'm sorry, but you can't do it that way. We got to do it this way kind of training. Like, oh, we don't have time for that. I know that's what the book says, but this is what we got to do. That's the kind of training that nurses are getting these days. I'm sorry, but that's just what it is. And that's because you and I have been in those situations and understand that's what happens, but it should no, not happen. No, it absolutely shouldn't. And yeah, and that's why it's really important. If, if, if a nurse is named in a lawsuit, and you have an attorney assigned to you, you need to reach out to a legal nurse consultant, someone like myself, or there's there's other really, really good legal nurse consultants that can look at help you look at your case. We can work alongside of that attorney and say, this is who their expert is. We can sit in the courtroom and say they're not qualified to give either because they're they're not, they don't have the same education or training or experience, or what they're saying makes no sense. Then we can say, Put us on the stand as a legal nurse consultant. I can testify why she should not be qualified to be an expert witness. And, I mean, a lot of people just don't understand the scope or or what legal nurse consultants can do. But, I mean, not only do we work for the plaintiffs just to identify where these breaches of of duty and causation occur, we also work with defense. I work with a ton of nurses that get get, um, named in a lawsuit. And, you know, what exactly – walk me through what you did and why. What, what education and training did you receive? Because just because a facility says they're supposed to do something, as you and I well know, it doesn't it's always It's not happen. always reasonable. And it's what really yeah. did occur. And, 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 and it's really important when you get a, when a nurse goes to work for a certain organization, you have this checkoff sheet that says that they're supposed to check you off on all these skills. I can't tell you how many times I've seen new nurses come on. They're like, yep, 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 yep. And you're like, you really did all those things? Because they have a timeline that they're supposed to have them done by. So they just say, yeah, we did and we're comfortable with that. I wouldn't check off anything until somebody verifies and you are very comfortable, not only with the process, but the way the facility says their policy procedures are for that specific task. To do so, I think it just puts you at even greater risk of, of litigation and loss of your license and prosecution. A lot of those checklists will say things like, like for, for example, if it's a chest tube, it will say, discussed like one of the options is like you discussed it with your preceptor because you di- you haven't had an opportunity right. to actually have a patient with a chest tube okay so then okay check it off because i just dis- we discussed it hey we talked about it what are you going to do if you have a patient with a chest tube what are you going to assess first what are you going to blah 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 so then it, t- three months later you're off orientation and three months later you actually get a patient with a chest tube your preceptor is nowhere around you have you know too many patients and, and they're like, oh, this patient's got a chest tube. And you're like, oh, oh, okay. I haven't had a patient with a chest tube. Oh, well, sorry. You you went to nursing school, right? You know how to take, take care of a chest I mean, you went to nursing school. We discussed right. it. You discussed it. You, you should know. So then here you are in your phone, <laughs> YouTube, how to take care of patient with. Yeah. That's what people yeah. are doing these days. So looking forward to to potentially and 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 with hopefully within the next 12 months, we'll have this as a mandatory CEU for nurses and Rightly so, it should scare people. You do not want to be named in a lawsuit and be out there on your own. What is this going to educate? It's going to educate about how to protect yourself, how to prepare yourself, how to what 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 can they expect? We we discuss we discuss three phases of litigation. Number one, how in your clinical practice to protect yourself through documentation. A lot a lot of nurses, what we've seen is they refuse tasks, then they get fired. There is a right way, and every state has their own way of nurses identifying either the illegal act of, of doing or being requested or required to do something within a, 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 mm-hmm. a clinical area. 
some states have a legal avenue for nurses to proceed through in the clinical practice area. Others don't. Um, but there's always a route by which they can go. Um, and we identify those per state and each clinical area that they can do that in. And, and understanding what your state laws are and protections for medical staff is, is, is critical. And you should know those before you ever step foot into the clinical area. Number two, we identify if you're, once you're, once you're identified in or list or named in a lawsuit, what should you and what should you not do? Number one, don't go back and chart something mm-hmm. to the chart. Num- number two, don't go running your mouth on, on social media and putting stuff out there because they're going to find it. They're going to use it against you. Number three, don't go directly to the hospital and start just pouring your heart out and throwing people under the bus because that's not going to work for you either. We identify the right way to do that, how to proceed, how to obtain your own uh, representation as far as lawsuits. If you don't have your own insurance, if you do, then that will they'll help you uh, do that. And then finally, if you are named, once those proceedings start and you start being questioned by opposing counsel, you are deposed, you do go to trial, what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say, how to answer questions in both those settings, both in depositions and trial, and then how to, what your expectations should be for your uh, representation. How do you prep for a deposition? How do you prep for trial? And then, and then, it, and then how all that comes together and works. It's, it, it walks you through every process this and step amazing. of the phase of each of, of the litigation process. It sounds wonderful. And you're exactly right. Every single nurse should be required. It should be a requirement. It's 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 so incredibly important. Oh, absolutely! Wow. Lo- looking forward to it. Like I said, if you, if you if you want more information, you can go to MalayerLegalNurseConsulting.com or my my contact information, email, everything's on that website. If you have questions or concerns or you're um, involved in a litigation process now and don't know what to do, call us. We will gladly help you. And we'll put that link in our description of this episode. And also, we're going to put the as uh, Robert's name in the name of the episode. That way you can just sort of see how he spells his name. So I also have a lot of people listen that are interested in different types, like different careers. What if somebody's interested in becoming a legal nurse consultant? Is there anything that, that you offer to try to help people with that or any advice you could give? I am very closely tied with uh, LegalNurse.com, previously known as the uh, Vicki Malazzo Institute. I served like for a mentor for them up until July of this year. I've actually separated myself as a mentor. I just don't have time. I am also serve as a member of the American Association of Legal Nurse Consultants, the ALNC. And both organizations are great organizations. They have a wealth of knowledge. Both provide a certification process for you to become certified to become a legal nurse consultant. But if you have questions about the process, how it works, what do you do? Is it a viable way of income or or employment for a nurse? Call me. I'll gladly tell you my experience. I'll gladly give you some insights and, and ideas, and I can shoot you to the right people to call for both organizations and explain the difference in the uh, education programs. But yeah, if you're interested, I'm an open book, man. I'll, I'll tell you the good, the bad, the ugly, and just be honest with you. It's not made, it's not meant for everybody. But if it's something you are considering, like I tell everybody else, I am not meant to be a med surge nurse. I need adrenaline. <laughs> I'm an ER nurse. That's just where my truth lies. I don't like to sit still. I'm stuck in this wheelchair right now after surgery and oh, gosh. not we doing even that, talked about well. that Robert. Yeah. So yeah, that's so yeah. So everybody has their own kind of niche in nursing. I, I think that's important to know where you belong. But yeah, if you're interested, I, I mean, I'll share my truths with you in a, in a heartbeat. There's so many possibilities. And that's why I tell nurses all the time. Sometimes people will message me and just be like, 
I feel like I made a mistake. I I regret even going to nursing school. I'm so overwhelmed. There, they it's it's so stressful this first year, that first year or so, trying to work in the hospital. And I usually will start by saying, first of all, don't give up just yet. I I felt that way too. And then I started loving it when I worked at the hospital after about a year. So don't give up just yet. It might be that you need to switch units. Maybe that unit's not right for you. Maybe you just need to give it some time. You need good, you need good support. But if it's not, oh my gosh, don't regret going to nursing school. It's literally one of the most diverse opportunity. Like as far as a a degree goes, I mean, you think about a degree that has this many opportunities for you to turn it into a completely different career. I I can't honestly can't think of one. Well, most, most, most nurses, I mean, they have no idea all the opportunities that are out there. You don't just have to work in a hospital. You don't just have to work in a nursing home or there's there's a million different opportunities out there. And if you if you actually love caring for people, if you have a love for people, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a out there kind of guy. But man, I, I love being a nurse. I, I love I love every aspect of healthcare. I But I like I said, I'm an adrenaline junkie. I spent 10 years in the military. I, I like the high, the, you know, high speed, low drag kind of aspect of nursing. I love the, the ICU. I love the ER. And so that's just kind of, you know, where I'm kind of drawn to. And I, I love acute care and, and everything that comes with it. A lot of responsibility can really kind of be overwhelming at times, but man, I, I thrive in that, in that kind of, yeah. in that kind of area. And I, I just like the adrenaline rush. So. So tell everyone what's going on with you. You, t- you were telling me right before we started recording and I'm, I was completely shocked. You're in a wheelchair. What happened? I'm a big mess, man. I'm a big mess and I love it. It's okay. I've had five surgeries in the past four years. I was in the military for 10 years and kind of tore my, my, my joints up. So I've had both of my ankles redone. My right shoulder was redone a year and a half ago. In February this year, they went and redid my knee because it's all torn up. They went in orthoscopically and found that it was a lot worse than what they expected. That there's cartilage just completely gone in huge portions. And so I was bone on bone. So they took a biopsy of the cartilage out of my knee, sent it down to California, which I didn't even know was a thing. And they grew my own cartilage over the last six months. And then on September the 18th, they went in and did a cartilage transplant in my knee. And this biofilm that they grew this cartilage on, it was insane. They would cut it out, match the actual shape of the missing cartilage, put it between the bone. I've been non-weight bearing in this wheelchair for six weeks now. It's actually been six weeks today. And today is the first day that I can actually be uh, weight bearing. I've been approved for 25% weight bearing on my my legs. So being able to get up and be vertical is, is good. But this surgery and what they were able to do, this is the first surgery that, that this time this has been done with this with a knee and surgeon. The, the physical therapy people I've been working with have never seen the surgery done ever. So they've been doing research and having to review all of the all of the ways and how to rehab me and what not to let me do because I'm the guy that's like, I can do that. They're like, no, they're you like, can't. No, you can't. Don't do that. And so, yeah, 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 they're like, you need to calm down. So putting limitations on me and, and kind of getting me to realize, like I said, I'm an adrenaline guy. I don't do well sitting still for six weeks. And and sitting in this chair and sitting in this wheelchair is not what I wanted to do. But at the age of 47, I thank God for, man, for the for the advancements in, in, in medicine that allowed this procedure to be done. I did not want to have a total knee replacement at the age of 47 and having to redo that every Mm-mm. 12 to 15 years the yeah. rest of my I've life. I've heard those are not fun. So basically, I have a brand new knee. My own cartilage is in there growing, which is insane to me. 
so I am up and uh, able to stand on my own for the first time, which is a, a kind of a cool thing. So oh standing my up, gosh. able to put weight on my That's leg for awesome. the first time, and I'm able to bend it. So you can oh, see the wow. scar. It's impressive. But yeah, got full range of motion in it, working with physical therapy. The physical therapy team has been absolutely amazing. And I mean, just the knowledge and the, the growth that they've had in this experience, because they haven't seen a patient like me um, with this type of procedure. But yeah, man, just being able to know that my knee is going to be back, hopefully to 100% as it was before I even went to the military, all because of the advancements and able to put my own cartilage back in that knee. It's mind blowing to me. I want to take my surgeon out <laughs> for a sure. date. I just, y'all bug, I am dinner because I'm like, man, I mean, with all the pains and struggles I've had with the joints and, and stuff, I love serving my country. I love this. I love this country with everything I have. Definitely sacrificed some joint movement <laughs> in my 10 years. So to have it back to where it was, I can't be more thankful. Well, thank you for your service. I do appreciate that. I know all of my listeners do too, as, as well. We, you, you are so appreciated uh, for the sacrifice that you have made. I know it, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine multiple surgeries. Um, that's that's just that's just crazy. I've never had a major surgery like that at, at all. The one thing I will tell you, and I think every military veteran will tell you the same thing. I got to serve with some amazing people in my 10 years, especially after 9-11 in Iraq. The fact that I got to come home when so many didn't, um, a few surgeries, I'm good with it. The best thing that, that y'all can do, if y'all want, if y'all actually want to do credit and give give to veterans, man, love each other. Make this country what it's supposed to be. Actually care for each other. All the hatred and the and the bigotry and the the anti-Semitism and all that stuff that's going on. Man, we're we're all Americans at heart. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. We all bleed red. There are people from every type of uh, background and ethnicity that have given their lives and sacrificed everything they have for this country. Um, it's about time that we realize that we're Americans. Love this country. Love your neighbor. Take care of each other. And when crazy stuff you see, report it. And man, this this country's full of good people. And as long as the good people stand up and make sure that we do the right thing each time, this country's going to be fine. And you have people that serve and protect this country for a reason. It's worth worth protecting. Well, I can't think of a better way to end the episode. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hopefully, you'll come back again soon. My pleasure. I'm 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 at your beck and call. You ever want me back? I'm here with you. Okay. Well, then you're going to be back because well, I'll have Emily. I'll have Emily hit you up again. We'll be Robert will be back soon. I'm awesome. I'm ready. I'm excited. Well, and of course, you guys. As I said earlier, we'll put a link to where you can find Robert on it, within the episode, and also his name will be in uh, the description, so you'll know how to find him. And. You can find us, of course, at goodnursebadnurse.com, and you can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse. And, of course, we're on social media somewhat at goodnursebadnurse. I'm terrible with the social media stuff, but, you know, do what I can. And, of course, I'll have to remind you before we leave that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.